There we are. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. The question that I want to pose to us tonight is, are we Calvinist? Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is no salvation, I'm sorry, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You must have noticed, you may have noticed, you should have noticed that the church that is the host of this family camp is Altus Reformed Baptist Church. And if you're Reformed in your theology, then the question that you have very often, and maybe even the accusation that you may have heard, asked to you is this, are you a Calvinist? And the truth is, is that people really like labels. We like handles. We like easy-to-fit compartments to be able to put things into and people into as well. We say that that person who likes working on cars, that person, that, they're a motorhead. That person who likes sports, they're a jock. Or people who are like my wife, we just call them hotties. Um, <laughs> we like to be able to lump people into an easy, unidentified so that we can either love them or hate them. And I was a Calvinist long before I had ever even heard that term, before I ever knew there was such a thing. But then I found my tribe, and I was given that name, Calvinist. And at first I rejected that label because I had a bad understanding of what it meant. I did not follow John Calvin, whoever that guy is. I didn't want to be known as a follower of him. I didn't know who he was, but I knew and I was very proud to say that I am not a Calvinist. I am a Christian. But when now I'm asked, are you a Calvinist? I ask in return, what do you mean by that? Because the reason for that question is because the meaning behind that term has a different meaning for most people than it does for us. We need to know exactly what people are saying when they label you. We, we need to know exactly what they're trying to say when they call you a Calvinist. And the meaning behind that term can be very elusive. I mean, we have seen in our own time that although words are supposed to have meaning, people have become so dense that clear words with clear meanings no longer are clear. We no longer know what sex is. According to Bill Clinton, sex is whatever the definition of is is. We no longer know what the meaning of woman is, as proudly opined by Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And now we no longer know what a pastor is, as proudly stated by the delegates of the latest SBC convention as they mimicked Rick Warren. And then we run across those people who think I am a sports legend because I have mastered John Madden football. 
Oh, I am a war hero because I have logged multiple hours on Call of Duty. There are those that claim to be heroes because they showed up to work at Walmart in the midst of the greatest killing pandemic that a man has ever known. And they're heroes for doing that. And there are people who claim to be Christian who don't know what sin is or how people are saved. Think Joel Osteen. You see, terms matter. Words matter. Truth matters. And to be able to define what Calvinist is matters as well. You need to be able to know what it is in your own head so that if someone asks you, are you a Calvinist? You at least have some framework to work from. So what is a Calvinist? Can you define this? Could you be able to define this? Well, in the purest sense of the word, a Calvinist would be a person who would follow and hold to all the teachings of that pastor, John Calvin, as found in the Institutes of Religion. And there were four very clear guides for the church that Calvin served as pastor at. And to be a Calvinist, you would need to actually adhere to all four of these things. The church should be the, under the authority of the government. There would be a head governing body over the local church. And it was the government's and thereby the church's responsibility to root out and punish severely all false teachers and teaching. Up to and including death. And finally the fourth thing, that baptism was an ordinance that all members of a Christian family, and by that I mean not just talking infants, but all members of a family. They were baptized when, a, when one, the husband or the wife, came to Christ. So using, by using the standard of all four of these things, it's safe to say there are no more Calvinists anymore. Since there are no churches that follow all four of these tenets. The Reformed Presbyterians, who we are blessed to have a family here of, Guys, I don't know if you know that or not, but the Tolls are actually Reformed Presbyterians, and we're not supposed to get along. We're supposed to actually be upset with one another. I don't know if you guys know that or not. They're, the Reformed Presbyterians are the closest thing to true Calvinists because they hold the two of the four distinctives. They have a local session that, that governs all the churches in that area, and they baptize at le- all their, the members of their nucleus family, at least their nucleus family. But if following all the teachings of Calvin makes you a Calvinist, then even they aren't Calvinist. But this, however, is not the definition or meaning of the people who use Calvinists as that hammer to label falsely those that hold to sound doctrinal theology. This isn't even the definition and the meaning of the term Calvinist that call themselves Calvinist either. I can't define for you. I can't tell you what they mean. Those people that desire to use that term Calvinist as a hammer. I can't tell you what it means because they can't tell you what it means. 
If you ask them what it means, they just kind of stumble along, and they, they, then they just come up with these wild ideas. We eat our young. We don't evangelize. Oh, and by the way, the people that love to tell you that Calvinists don't evangelize, they're the ones that never, you will never see them in front of Walmart telling people about Jesus. Oh, then there are those that say that Calvinists, they are mean-spirited. But again, those are the, usually the ones that love standing in the back of a room, being very much alien or um, ostracized by everybody else, and standing back and so that they can't be seen, and loving to say, what does reform mean? And then we're finally said that what we're trying to do is bring in a new religion. In short, they have, no term, they have no idea what that term Calvinist means. But what they will fall, commonly fall back on is the idea that they are Christian. And that anyone who calls themselves Calvinist is following another man other than Jesus. That a Calvinist is building on another foundation other than Jesus Christ. And are they right in this truth? And can you define what a Calvinist is? Because if you are Reformed, then you must be able to define what this means. But before you can answer that question, you need to be able to determine it in your own hand. To be able to understand if this describes you and how you know God or not. In truth, even if you're not Reformed in your theology, you need to be able to know why you believe what you believe. And saying, because the Bible says so. That's why I believe it. That doesn't count. That's a cop-out. Because you don't even know what it says. You can't say, uh, well, it's because Jesus loves me and that's why I'm a Christian. Or I know my God would never do that. That doesn't mean anything either. They will say, that's not the Jesus that I know. The Jesus that I know, the Jesus of the Bible would never do that. But you have to understand is that you need to know who that Jesus is that you actually truly worship, if it is the Jesus of the Bible or not. Do you understand that the Mormons, they claim that they love Jesus? Do you understand that? But the Jesus that they love is not the Jesus of the Bible. Just to, as to give you guys a, hip, uh, a hint, tell you guys just how special Trace and I are. When we were in Hawaii, Jesus mowed our lawn. He did. Jesus Rodriguez. Jesus Rodriguez mowed our lawn. Not the Jesus of the Bible either. And he's not, the, the, he's not the God or the Jesus of the Roman Catholics either. And you must know why you believe what you believe. And this is what a disciple is. I'm going to use a little Greek here in a second. This is the meaning of the word that was used by Christ in that great commission. Michael, you're going to have to help me out here. When he told us to go and make disciples, he used a Greek word that is very particular here. It is matetusami, or something like that. Mate, 
Do you know what it is? That's it. Yep. Very particular. It means a faith-filled learner. Or it means a learner who has faith. Basically, it's a scholar. It's not somebody who just has faith. And it's not just somebody who is a learner. It's a faith-filled learner. That's what a disciple is. You can't just look and say, I'm a disciple because I have faith if you're not learning. And you can't say that I'm a disciple if I'm a learner, but I'm not, wa- I'm not walking and learning and acting in faith. You have to be both to be a disciple. Christ says that you need to learn about Him. And I can, I can define what a Reformed Baptist and even a Reformed Presbyterian means by that term Calvinist. There are two types of Calvinists, Presbyterians and Baptist. And they both understand Calvinism to mean the same thing. We both look to the Synod of Dort and the Canon of Dort as what defines the thing that is commonly labeled as Calvinism. And you're asking yourself, pray tell, what is the Canon of Dort? And this is where most people's eyes kind of get glassy and they kind of roll back up in their head because, oh gosh, he's going to go into church history. Who cares about church history? That was like a long time ago. You need to know church history. Church history matters. Because without it, without it, we wouldn't understand what we know now. We wouldn't understand what it means, why we call ourselves Christians and how we arrived here, believing what we do, and even our understanding of such things as the divinity of Christ, the triune nature of God, how the salvation of all these things work. None of this stuff would have been settled if it were not for church history. So the canon of Dort was the official position and finding that came out of an ecumenical meeting called the Synod of Dort. A synod, now a synod is just a fancy title for official meeting. And this one began in 1618 in the town of Dortrecht, Holland. And it was sponsored by the Dutch Reformed Church. But it was also an official synod, meaning that there were over 250 pastors and theologians from all over Europe gathered together. And the first meeting began on November the 13th, 1618, and lasted, the meeting lasted for um, all the way to May 29th, they had 180 meetings to settle a dispute that was happening. This extensive meeting were called because of a theological position that was being taught that went contrary to what most of these churches believed, and it went against that Belgic confession. Remember the three C's that we were talking about, Reformed theology? The Belgic Confession is one of those confessions the Reformed theologians, theologians hold to. Matter of fact, we, we, the elders here, we took the Belgic Confession and we pulled out all the references that went straight to the Roman Catholics and we made it our elder confession of faith. So basically, the thing that governs our body, the thing that governs and makes sure that your elders remains orthodox is the Belgic Confession of Faith. And these men, they met to search the scriptures 
to discuss the, the teachings from the scriptures and then determine what was biblical and what was not. And the teachings that were being beginning to take hold out there in a section of the church went against the common understanding of scripture. And it was called the five points of the remonstrance, which was the teaching of a man who had once been the student of John Calvin named Jacobus Arminius. They said that the Bible, the Bible taught conditional predestination. God kind of knew that you're going to be predestined or not. He looked down that corridor of time. He peeked his head out of his office and looked down the, the corridor of time to see who was going to choose him or not. And he's, he, he chose them. They were the ones that were predestined to be of him. They taught universal atonement. They said that the blood of Christ was shed for all people. They taught resistible grace. That the grace of God, that God may be sovereign over all things, but he's not sovereign over your free will. They taught that you could never be certain whether or not you are saved until you took your last breath. There was no assurance of salvation. That's what this is the things that they taught. And the men from the Synod of Dort, they produced a document that outlined their collective findings concerning these teachings. And it's much longer than just five points. It's actually broken up into four sections that address each of the points of these, that these men were teaching that was called Arminianism. And the first section covers the doctrine of predestination. It has 18 articles. Articles are affirmations from the Word of God saying, this is what we believe. This is what we hold to. And then they gave nine refutations or rejections of their, against Arminius' belief, why they were heresy. And the second section, the second section, man, covers the doctrine of the death of Christ and the redemption of men. It has nine articles. Seven rejections concerning the Arminius beliefs. The third section covered the corruption of man, his, um, his conversion to God, and the manner thereof. And it had 17 articles, nine rejections. The fourth section covered the perseverance of the saints, had 15 sections, nine rejections. So you have to ask yourself, where then did we come up with the five points of Calvinism? Where, where did we come up with this acronym TULIP from? You guys have heard of TULIP. You may not be able to remember what it stands for, but you've heard of it. Well, the five points of Calvinism, or TULIP, they came from a booklet that was produced in 1963 by a, by a man named Kenneth Stewart had great intentions. He just wanted to summarize into shorthand form what the Canadort actually stated. Because we all know that acronyms actually help us, right? We all know that. And if you're in the military, you know everything is acronyms. Uh, and you, start, you ta start talking in acronyms and people are like, we have no idea what you mean. And in making this acronym TULIP, he had to rearrange the order of the canons of Dort. He had to rearrange it to, to fit TULIP, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election. And this is what the Canon of Dort, the Synod of Dort, 
This is the official findings that they said. Man is totally depraved. Election, unconditional. There is limited atonement. Grace is irresistible. And the saints are completely preserved for all eternity. I believe it would have been a lot easier if Mr. Stewart had just stuck with the outlines of the canon of Dort. And if he desired to make it, its findings more easily remembered, he could have come up with a better acronym, something like GMO. Um, you know, uh, God's choice to save God's people by the propitiation of his son, man's corruption and work of the Holy Spirit in conversion, and then the O would be our eternal security in God. But since that, catch, that wasn't catchy enough, although it's accurate, We've been forced to live with the five points of Calvinism or tulip that has come to represent Calvinism. Are we then Calvinist in this sense of the term? Do we hold to the orthodox understanding as laid out in Scripture, as stated by the Synod of Dort, that the Canon of Dort came out of? That one that has never to this day ever been refuted or denied as orthodoxy, let that sink in. Did you, did you just hear what I said? The Christian church said this is what orthodoxy is. And it's never been refuted within orthodox Christianity. Ever. So that pastor that wants to come to you and, and start yell, railing on you about being a Calvinist, just ask him, so are you stepping outside of orthodoxy? Is, that's, I just want to know, I mean, are you an Arminian? Because if, you're, if you are not willing to, to stand by the, um, the canon of Dort, by the synod of Dort, you're stepping outside of orthodoxy. You're stepping outside of what Christianity has been since 1619, since the beginning. So if this is what you're asking, if you are asking, David, are you a Calvinist based off of that? I would say 100% yes. As would Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine, John the Revelator, Jesus the Christ. We who hold to Reformed theology, who affirm the canons of Dort, and we would therefore be known as Calvinistic in our theology. And we proudly lay claim to the same thing that Paul did in 1 Corinthians 3. We would say to those that desire to label us derogatorily with that term Calvinist, we would say to them, but I, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when, when, when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what, is, what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as if through fire. Saints, you, you who are Calvinist, who are Reformed, don't be too hasty to throw labels at people. But at the same time, don't shrink from the reality of what you know to be true in Christ either. In humility, be willing to stand for the truth. And in, in humility, be willing to defend the truth of Scripture. Do as that prince of preacher. You guys know, know who the prince of preacher is? Charles Spurgeon, that Calvinist? Do as he did when orthodoxy was attacked in his day. He said, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt, it's a very proper and right, and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books or there are most books of that kind, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of Persians were to take it into their head that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beast. There he is in the cage. And, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well... I, suggest, I would suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should just kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach Him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all His adversaries. But saints, there is a truth within Reformed circles that's embarrassingly shameful. We who say that we hold to the doctrines of grace that say that we desire to bring glory to God in all things, especially in salvation. So very often, we are smug in our estimation of how smart we are in our faith in God. Did you, did you hear what I just said? Can you catch, do you catch the oxymoronic about that? How, how stupid that is. We hold that it's God who redeems us, who does the work of salvation, that the flesh is of no value at all, that a fallen dead man cannot choose God. 
And then we act smugly in thinking that somehow it's our intellect that, that we understand the Bible and those people that do not, those people are just stupid. And maybe we won't say those words, but our attitude toward anyone who holds a different understanding of Scripture, those that desire to claim that they chose God, that they did this, we will look down our noses at them. <laughs> Pat them on the head, those silly little kids. One of these days they're just going to attain to God like I have. One of these days, one of these days you may attain to the greatness that I have attained to in knowing God. We will boldly say that you cannot argue a person into salvation and then argue with a Christian as if we can argue them into seeing something that the Lord has not yet revealed to them. Don't be that guy. Saints, when you get railed on, and you will get railed on, when you get railed on because of your belief in God by a person who is not reformed, resist the urge to retaliate. They're not attacking you. Resist the urge to lash out. Resist the urge to score points in the battle of wits. Just humbly ask questions. You may find out that that person that you're talking to, the one that is hostile to you, will soften because of dialogue with them. And then you might find some common ground concerning Christ. And it's then that you can start building a friendship and a relationship and maybe even some mutual respect. And then that through your love and friendship, the Lord may use you to open their eyes of their heart to His Word as they begin to see the truth of God's sovereignty is revealed in His Word. Lord, I would just tell you, pray. Don't rail. And I would pray. And I would tell you to pray and ask God to reveal to you who you really are. Because when you finally see who you really are, you will not look down your nose on anybody. When you finally see the depths and the depravity of your soul, it is then that you will truly understand that God is sovereign over all things. And if He has given you the eyes to be able to see Him in His Scripture, that is amazing grace. And pray that in that, that He would use that to melt your pride away. That you would gladly then Wear that label, Calvinist. Knowing that you're not following a man, but allowing it to open the door 
to conversation with those who claim Christ, who may have never heard the truth before. But you have to be willing to be attacked. You have to be willing to be engaged. You have to. But you have to be knowledgeable in who you believe. Because if you do not, if you do not understand what a Calvinist is, when you do not understand what a Calvinist is, two things are going to happen. One is that you will never claim to be one. Or the second thing you're going to do is you're going to rail. You're going to attack. And you're going to attack that person instead of actually understanding that that person may be a child of God, your brother that you are attacking. And he hasn't had the teaching that you've had. He hasn't been blessed with the family that you've been blessed by. He hasn't had the, the eyes of his heart open to the truth of, of God's word yet. Be humble. But in the best sense of the word, be proud of your God. Let's pray.